tonight I want to uh, offer another model, another schema that kind of goes along with the model of the four Brahma-viharas of uh, metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And it begins with what the Buddha talked about in terms of our vision of life, could say our world view. Our sense of who we are, what our life is about, if we have kind of fundamental thread of meaningfulness, of aspiration, our idea of what's important. Many of you, I know, have heard one or another of us talk about that day over 30, over, yeah, uh, 29 years ago now, when um, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and I uh, first came to look at this property. We had each been back from Asia for a couple of years, Jack from Thailand and Joseph and I from India. And for those years, upon returning, we had lived a kind of, you might say, sort of haphazard, uh, kind of grassroots kind of life, where somebody would write us a letter and say, would you like to come teach a retreat? I can get together some friends and a cook. And we'd say, sure. And we would go and teach that retreat. And then at the end of that retreat, we never knew if there'd be another retreat until the next letter arrived. And then finally, somebody said to us, well, why don't you establish a center of your own? It would be like a sacred site in this country. It would be a repository for the kind of energy that gets developed and engendered when people come together to practice, and then it wouldn't have to be dispersed. So we said, sure, that's a great idea. And to the uh, very deep regret of many people, most of the enthusiasm at that time was on the East Coast. And people say, oh, you know, you could have had anywhere. There was nothing. (laughs) You could have had Hawaii. (laughs) You could have had California. But we ended up looking in uh, New York State and New England and spent some time looking for property. Uh, And then finally, somebody suggested we come look at this place in Barrie, owned by the Catholic Church at the time. So we came, and we really weren't sure what to do, you know, On the one hand, it seemed like just the perfect place for a retreat center. It's uh, so quiet, it's placid, it's pretty. And on the other hand, it just seemed so big. And here we'd just been living this, you know, really loose kind of life. And it wasn't really clear at all how many people would be interested in this country and meditation or this form of meditation. It seemed so overwhelming an undertaking. So we went to downtown Barrie for lunch to try to figure it out. And those of you who came that way to the center noticed that uh, it's a very classic New England town with a town green just in the center of it. And in those days, there was a monument on the town green uh, 
which had engraved upon it the Barrytown motto, which is tranquil and alert. So we took a look at that, and we said, okay, that's an omen. Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. And so we did it, and so here we are all these years later. And I still, I quite enjoy it, you know, that that's the, the Barrytown motto. And these friends of mine got uh, married here, and that's stamped on their wedding certificate, tranquil and alert. And I thought that was a pretty good blessing. And you can see it in the police uniform and the epaulette and stuff. And so that's the Barrytown motto. And somebody was once reading a history of the town of Barry. And this building, when we bought it, it was owned by the Catholic Church. In its previous incarnation, it was a nursing home. And in its incarnation before that, its original, the, the main part of the building like behind me, it was a private home. It was a mansion built by Colonel Gaston, who at one point was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. The um, upper walking room behind me, I believe, was the ballroom, and the yoga room was the billiards room. And um, So it was his home. And uh, it turned out, according to this book, that Colonel Gaston himself had a motto that defined his life, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> Which also made me wonder, you know, how well Colonel Gaston was getting along with his neighbors. <laughs> but I often, I like those two stories in sequence or in close proximity to one another because I think we do tend as people, as collectives, as communities, to have a kind of motto that we live by, that we navigate our lives by, that we aspire to, that define us, our sense of what's possible, our sense of what we want to see. And sometimes it's pretty blunted and limited and small. Sometimes it's really immense and open. Some of the things that we often notice in the course of meditation practice is that that sense arising. This is what has guided my life. You should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell or something else. It's not very meta-filled, is it? <gasps> So what's our vision of life? What do we really care about more than anything? And can that open up rather than just be defined by yesterday and what we've been taught about ourselves or what other people project onto us? One of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher, Nyam Nyushal Ken Rinpoche, more or less said, why is your sense of aspiration, your sense of what is possible, so small, so meager, so limited? Why not aspire to be a fully liberated being for the sake of all beings? 
Why not? And this also is something we confront quite a bit in our practice in looking within. Why not? What is holding us back? What is having us think so little of ourselves? And we, we open that sense of aspiration. It continues to grow and to change as we continue to practice, as we see more and more the truth of our own experience. And part of that truth is that we don't exist in isolation. What we do matters. What we care about matters because we are all connected to one another. Whether we like somebody or not, or admire them or not, their life has something to do with us, and our life has something to do with them. That's really the picture of life, the vision of life, that informs our aspiration. Many years ago, after we'd come here and founded the center, we went back to India and saw one of our teachers, uh, this man named Manindra, and we invited him to come here, to come to Barry, and you know, see what was happening. And um, So he started asking us a lot. He was a very curious kind of person. Um, I remember once in Washington, D.C., uh, Joseph and I took him to the Air and Space Museum, and he was there for six and a half hours. I went to sleep on a couch, and I woke up, and Joseph was lying asleep on the next couch. You know, it was like, so it's Meninger's mind. He was very eager to learn everything about everything. And um, so he asked us all these questions about Barry, you know, what's it like? And, and then he said something like, how many cows do you have? And we said, we don't have any cows. And he said, he was very puzzled. He said, well, how do you get fresh milk? And we said, well, you don't need in America to have a cow (laughs) to get fresh milk. But for him, life was all of one piece. It was quite seamlessly connected. He just couldn't, he had no concept of, you know, being so far removed from the source of the milk and um, somehow procuring it every day. It reminded me of this is a story about a monk in the Buddhist time who they say came from a, a very wealthy aristocratic family. And the other monks would tease him a lot. They would say, where does milk come from? And he'd say, it comes from a silver bowl, because that's all he'd ever seen. Was that in his life, it appeared on his, his table in a silver bowl, his life before he was a monk. And then they'd say, where does rice come from? And he'd say, it comes from a golden bowl, because that's what he thought. And it, sort of, it reminds me of me growing up in Manhattan, <laughs> you know, where who knows where this stuff comes from. But every bite of food we've had today has a source. It's connected. We are connected through it to a vast array of people and influences and incidents and relationships and encounters and 
someone's hopes and someone's dreams and someone's work. And that's what goes into that broccoli as we pierce it with our fork and eat it. So that's the kind of the primary matrix within which ethics operate, within which our practice operates, within which our dedication, our aspiration operates, that it matters, that we matter, that we are all part of this greater whole. When we reached here our 20th anniversary, we decided to have a party. And since we had moved in on Valentine's Day and we decided you can't really have a party very easily in New England in February. Um, it's easier to have a retreat than a party. Uh, we did it in the summer, and as part of the ceremony, um, some young people who sit here planted a tree in the garden, and you can still go down to the garden and you can see the tree. And I think often that there are a couple of different ways of viewing this tree. We can go down and see the tree, and it's just like a a single entity. It's a tree standing there. But there's another way of going down there and looking at the tree and and sensing not just the tree, but all of those component parts and relationships and influences and connections that make up that tree. The earth, which is nurturing it, and all the people who have stewarded this piece of earth for centuries, and, and the sunlight and the moonlight and the quality of the air and the quality of the rainfall, which is nourishing that tree and everything that affects the quality of the rainfall. And we go on and out and out. And we see that it's not just a tree standing there all alone, but the combination of so much of life coming together in that moment of time. And so are we here, right now, each one of us. So that's the vision. And out of the vision of life, of interconnection, comes the power of intention. Resting on that understanding of what we care about more than anything. Moment to moment, we are guided by motivations, by intentions. When the Buddha talks about action, or within the Buddhist um, kind of scheme of things, intention is a very, very important part of any action. It's really like the energy of it. That's where almost like the pulsation of life of the action is in the intention. So, for example, if I reached down and picked up this chant sheet and handed it to one of you. All anybody sees is my hand moving down and picking up a piece of paper and moving it forward. But what's the heart space that's motivating me? could be anything. Maybe I'm giving it to you because I like you. Or maybe I'm giving it to you because I see that you have something I want, and I think, well, hey, you know, I'll give you this, and it didn't cost me anything, you know, and you'll give me that thing of great value, perhaps. Or maybe I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm sitting here in front of a room full of people, and I want everyone to think of me as a very 
kind, considerate, generous person. So I see you're fumbling for the words, and I'm going to reach down and hand you the chant sheet. But it has nothing to do with compassion for you. It's really because I want to appear as just so great in front of everybody else. Or there could be a million different motivations or intentions guiding the same action. My hand moving down, picking up a piece of paper, and moving it forward. So the, the energy, the, the life force, the um, tr- traditionally we'd say the karmic seed is not in the movement of my hand, it's in that intention. It's in the heart space that is motivating the actual action, the thing we say, the thing we do. Because it's a totally different action, depending on where it's coming from. So the Buddha emphasized over and over again the power of intention, using awareness, using mindfulness to know our intention and to understand how much choice we really have in being the person we want to be based on cultivating certain intentions, letting go of others. The teaching of intention in the Buddhist time was actually like a social revolution because the context in which the Buddha was teaching was one where the word dharma, which we use to mean nature, the truth, the true nature, the law, was used in a very particular way often that was associated with the caste system, which was the idea that everybody and everything had its own nature, its own dharma, and that what was right and ethical and moral for one person or gender or um, class or caste of society might be immoral for another So, because they weren't following their own dharma in that view. And so... Uh, For example, to study scripture, to mediate with divine forces, to have a kind of spiritual um, life was considered totally right and moral and wholesome for a Brahmin male, but was considered immoral for an outcast. And so all of morality was based on the caste system how you were born. And the Buddha came along and said, that's completely irrelevant. You know, to say that birth and gender and status and wealth determine morality is crazy. What determines the morality of an action is the intention behind it. You can't say that, oh, it's okay for that person to study scripture, but it's immoral for that person because of how they were born, race, gender, so on. He said everything depends on intention. If somebody acts from an intention of love, of compassion, it doesn't matter how they were born, how much money they have, what gender they have. What matters is that intention. And so it was this huge upheaval um, in that teaching. 
it comes back to the power of intention. And interestingly enough, the first three Brahma Viharas of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy are said to uh, function in the transfiguration of our field of intention. If, in general, we have been coming from a place of fear, guided by fear, motivated by fear, or anger, or jealousy, or kind of coldness, uncaring, being cut off, and we do that practice, or those practices, of loving-kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, that whole field of intention will be transformed. So that's why it's not an exercise in thinking or lecturing oneself, like, I don't feel like it, but I have to. You know, we have changed that field of intention. The place we are coming from has been transformed. And so more often than not, although, you know, it takes time, (laughs) we are coming from that sense of connection, of care, of recognition, Once I was um, teaching a retreat here, and I was asleep at night, dreaming that I was teaching a retreat here, which wasn't the exciting part of the dream. But in in the dream, I was doing an interview with somebody, and they asked me, why do we love people? And in my dream, I responded, because they recognize us. And then I woke up, and I thought, that's pretty good. (laughs) That was good. It's coming from that place of recognition where we're quiet enough, our reactivity is quiet enough, our our sense of having to present ourselves as so splendid is quiet enough so that we can actually pay attention to somebody else. We can recognize something in them. So that is how those practices actually work, which is another reason why to uh, get on my favorite topic, it doesn't matter what you feel in these sort of emotional stratum because what's happening is by inclining the mind toward that force of connection, that recognition of somebody, paying attention to somebody, we are planting the seeds of a whole new kind of intentionality that will guide us. So that's how those practices work. The next thing the Buddha uh, talked about in terms of action is its skillfulness or unskillfulness. And it's very important to make a distinction between intention on the one hand and skillfulness or unskillfulness of action on another. Skillfulness or unskillfulness is doing the best we can based on our understanding at a given time of what is most appropriate. It means paying attention, being mindful in a bigger way, paying attention to context. You know, out of a beautiful motivation, you may want to say something to somebody, but you might pause a moment and think, well, you know, there are a lot of people in this room. Maybe this is the kind of thing best said privately. Maybe I should take the person aside, and maybe I should try to say it in this way. To be sensitive, to be aware. And here also, just like 
intention is an arena where we're constantly changing and learning and growing um, through paying attention, through different practices. Here, too, we're, we're learning and we're growing. We learn from making mistakes. We learn from feedback. We learn from just generally knowing how to be more skillful in different situations. The reason that it's so important to be able to distinguish intention from skillfulness of action is that many people, when they think about a practice like loving-kindness, they think that what remains for them as skillful action is a very narrow band of activity, mostly like that Ms. Kentucky smile. So here is where people say, I don't know if I want to go there, you know, because people who are loving people are not strong people. They don't take strong action. They don't stand up for themselves. They don't stand up for other people. They get into this sort of foolish, um, deluded state of, of just kind of acting like everything is okay. But really, the skillful action we choose at any given moment is based on our understanding at that moment of what the correct thing is to do. We may be motivated by great love and compassion, and we may decide that the skillful action is pretty fierce. You know, it's pretty strong and intense, because that seems, from our best understanding, the right thing to do. It's not like smiling, and it's not like simpering, you know. On the face of it, it can, it can be kind of startling, because it's so strong. But where it's coming from is a very beautiful place inside. Many years ago, um, I was—I uh, had a bad winter of bronchitis and um, a lot of sickness. And then every time I started to get better, I'd have a relapse. And I'd start to get better, and I'd have a relapse. And finally, I was really actually getting better. And I was living in New York City. Walking down the street one day, when I heard this woman's voice saying, I was really sick all winter, so I naturally felt a kind of kinship with her, and I turned around, and there was a woman standing there giving a whole bunch of money to this guy sitting on the sidewalk, a street person, this homeless person. So she was handing him a whole bunch of money, and she said, I was really sick all winter. I had pneumonia, and every time I started to get better, I'd have a relapse. And then I'd start to get better, and I'd have a relapse. And she said, now I'm finally actually getting better, and I just wanted to share the joy. So she was handing me a whole bunch of money. So I stood there, and I thought, gee, that's funny. I just walked right by that guy. (laughs) I was really sick all winter, too. And it didn't occur to me for a moment to share the joy. (laughs) And then I thought, what should I do? Should I go up to him and say, you're not going to believe this, (laughs) but... You know, I was really sick, too, all winter long. And, you know, I'd like to give you a whole bunch more money, and, which I ended up not doing. But um, the significant thing about what she did, I felt, was not necessarily giving him the money because one might decide it's not right, it's not skillful, it's not appropriate. But what was so impressive was 
that she walked by him and realized that his life had something to do with hers, that he was a worthy recipient of sharing the joy. You know, so that's, that's both the vision we have of life and the intention, and then the decision we make about giving money or not giving money. It depends. It really is almost like our best guess, our best wisdom about what the right thing to do is in any given moment, and there's no rule. We continually work, and we learn, and we grow to be more and more skillful. At the same time that we are working to transform our field of intention. And then the third aspect of an action, we have intention, skillfulness, and then the third is really the immediate outcome. It's what we see in front of us right there. Here comes the play of praise and blame, which I talked about the other night. You know, maybe I have a beautiful motive. I pick up the piece of paper. I do it really carefully. I do it very politely. I do it very respectfully. I hand you the piece of paper. And, you know, you couldn't care less about getting this chant sheet. You know, you just got some very dispiriting news or you... Um, just got some extraordinary, extraordinarily wonderful news. And, you know, it's like just a piece of paper in your eyes and you kind of nod distantly and you go away and I'm crushed. I think, oh no, I'm so stupid. I always do the wrong thing. You know, it's all me. Not thinking for a moment about that kind of dance of praise and blame. Not realizing that You, like all of us, are swept into that moment in time, born of conditions. There's so much in that one encounter. It's very rare that we go back and look at our intention and look at the skillfulness of our action as some kind of barometer of our integrity. Mostly we are very fixated on the result, the result right then. Did they smile enough? Did they thank me enough? Were they really happy? Were they really happier than they've ever been before? And so, of course, we go up and we go down and we go up and we go down for conditions that are completely outside of our control, and that is the very... Uh, kind of bitter irony of it is that we can and do continually work on our field of intention and we can and do continually work on the skillfulness of our action. But the one arena we count on to tell us who we are and how well we've done is the one we can't do anything about. Because what do you say to somebody? You know, something's going to happen at 10.15. So come into the room Don't pick up your cell phone messages. Don't check your email. Don't talk to anybody else and don't think of anything. I want you in there as a totally blank slate. Life's not like that. And it's kind of arising and passing away constantly of all of these conditions. So we go up 
when there's praise, we go down when there's blame. The Buddha was very cogent about this. He said, there's always blame in this world. And the story behind that is a story of a man who came to the monastery one day to hear something of the Buddha's teaching. And they said the first person he came upon was this monk who had taken a temporary vow of silence. And so when this this man said to him, will you tell me something of what the Buddha teaches, the monk was silent. And the man became furious and he just stomped away. Then the same man came back a second day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha's. It was a monk who was quite renowned, not only for his depth of practice, but for his great theoretical knowledge. And so when he was asked, can you tell me something of what the Buddha teaches, he launched into a very long, elaborate theoretical description And the man got really angry, and he stomped away. So the same man came back a third day, came upon another disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Ananda. Now they say Ananda, having heard what happened on the first day, and having heard what happened on the second day, was very careful to say something, but not too much. (laughs) And the man got really angry. He said something like, why are you treating such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. So this group of people went off to see the Buddha, and they said, Oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And he said, There's always blame in this world. If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. You know, and that's not to imply that we don't care, um, which would be, I think, quite unrealistic. But how much do we care? How much are we defined, not by our own motivation and our own skillfulness of action, but by someone's reaction, which we cannot control? And I told one story the other night about praise and blame, and there are so many. My own favorite story is uh, something that happened to me when, my own favorite so far, something that happened to me when uh, my first book, Loving Kindness, came out. And if you see, I think not on the uh, most recent paperback versions, but if you see an earlier one, or certainly the hardcover, uh, you can, and you look at the back, on the, the blurbs, you know, that people write on the back. Um, you can tell that it took me a very, very, very long time to write the book. Uh, somebody said something like, um, we've waited a long time for this book. And somebody else said, in this long-awaited first book. And uh, a friend of mine said, um, Sharon Salzberg has finally given us, you know, like... Uh, and I made the publisher take out the finally because it was just too much for me. But it took me a long time to write the book. And, um, and it was a big thing, you know, because it was my first book and, and uh, it had taken so long. And, and very soon after it came out, I was in California and I had lunch with somebody. And the person I was having lunch with said, um, 
Oh, Sharon, you wrote that book in such a way, it's just like being with you. It's like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And I was absolutely thrilled. I thought, what a beautiful compliment and an incredible thing to say to a writer. It was, it was so touching. And I was so moved by it that I was having dinner that night with a whole other group of people, and I repeated the comment. And somebody at the dinner table said, well, that's not true. <laughs> she said, I'm reading the book. It doesn't sound anything like you. It's not at all like being with you. And I thought, okay, <laughs> you can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner. <laughs> or you could take a moment and realize it's the same book. It's one book written from whatever motivation was guiding me at the time with whatever level of skill I could bring forth at the time. It was one book. Somebody thought one thing of it. Somebody else thought another thing of it. And I would not want to pretend I did not notice (laughs) the difference or that I didn't care. But it's a very important question for all of us. How much do we care? Are we continually defined by something so fragile and so changeable, so outside of our control? Or can we, this is very bad Buddhism, but can we own our own integrity um, as a sense of coming from within, landing our sense of who we are within. It's really very important. And this is the force of equanimity. If the first three Brahma-viharas transform our field of intention, it is equanimity that gives us the balance of mind. It's wisdom. You know, it's not that we don't care, but we understand. This is in the nature of things. There's always blame in this world. This is how things are. So that quality, which is not indifference, it's not callousness, it's not coldness, um, is really, it's, it's a very rich kind of spaciousness that can accommodate, that can accompany, that can be with the changing experiences of life because it will always be that way. So we do the best we can. And the way we measure that is not in something that is completely outside of our influence. Like having everybody praise us all of the time. Several years ago, some friends and I were hiking in um, Northern California, and we had decided we were going to go in uh, to the state park for three days following this path. And then on the fourth day, we were going to turn around and retrace our steps coming back along the same path. So this was the third day, and we're still going in. And turned out to be a day of very steady, constant, unremitting downhill walking. And the person I was walking with, it's like we, we were struck by the simultaneous realization, and we both just stopped. And he said to me, In a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. (laughs) And he was right, because the next day when we turned around to walk back along the same path, it was many, many, many hours of very constant uphill walking. It's not that on every level it's a dualistic universe, but on some levels it is, where there's pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, constantly changing. This is what we will experience in our lives. And we can be okay anyway. 
through the force of something like equanimity, to be at peace. It's not a stupid kind of peace, but a very connected kind of peace, to have balance of mind. This was also one of those qualities, it's like ease of being, that I thought, who wants that, you know? But then I got older, and I got wiser, and I thought, yeah, you know, that's pretty incredible. So the immediate result of our action is seen in terms of praise and blame. And there's also something to be seen in terms of that word immediate and to have the force of equanimity in its manifestation of patience. So many times we do something out of a beautiful motive with as much skill as we can doesn't seem to go anywhere. But we have to allow for a great unknowing in life and a really great mystery. There's so many times when what happens right now is not the end of the story. And what we've done in a way is plant a seed, which in its own time and in its own way will flower not going to happen faster than it's going to happen. And if we don't plant the seed, nothing will happen. But sometimes, very often, that's all that we can do. That's our work. And it's unclear where things are going. One time I was in, uh, also in Northern California, and somebody took me to Grace Cathedral, which had a labyrinth. It was the first time I'd ever walked a labyrinth, which, as I'm sure you know, is a, like a preset pattern um, where you start at the edge and you just follow it along through all these twists and turns with the goal of getting to the, the very center of the labyrinth. So Grace Cathedral had two labyrinths. One was a pattern on a, a rug inside, And the other was the identical pattern outside, um, kind of etched in uh, granite. So I started inside in the rug, at the edge of the rug, and I was just walking along, following the, the preset pattern of the labyrinth. And I had this really funny experience where I was almost in the very center when, strangely enough, my path took me right back out to the edge. And I thought, I made a mistake. And then I thought, well, this isn't very hard. This is like one foot in front of the other. <laughs> you know. So I'll just keep going. So I kept going, and lo and behold, what I discovered was that having started way at the edge and almost getting to the very center, my path took me right out to the edge for a while and then brought me back in before I got to the very center. And then I went out and I walked the identical pattern on the granite, and I had the identical experience, of course. I was almost in the center. (laughs) The path took me way back out to the edge, and I thought, I must have made a mistake. (laughs) And then I thought, wait a minute, didn't you just have this experience like three minutes ago? Didn't you notice that it's like that sometimes? There's a great mystery in an unfolding of a life. This is how it is. 
And so we can't get too stuck on what is appearing right in front of us because whether we can see it or not, there is a much bigger picture at play. And we do what we can do. I've often realized because of that that there is great importance in doing the good in front of me, even if it seems very small. Because there's no knowing how it will ripple out, how it will link, what will happen from that one seed being planted. We can't tell right at that moment. After we first moved in here, all those years ago, Within a month, we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And I liked that one a lot. I used to look at that envelope and think, what were they thinking, you know? And my mind went all the way to like some kind of dehydrated kit, and you add water and you get instant meditation like oatmeal. Um, But of course, that is our great cultural norm. If something doesn't happen instantly, it's not worth it. We need to be gratified instantly. We need to declare it a success instantly. But life's not like that very often. And then the second letter, which is my current favorite, Instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, it was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. <laughs> and that I really loved. I've decided that that is truthful. You know, that is how life is. Because there have been so many moments in my spiritual life, in my meditation practice, where it has felt like nothing is happening only for me to look back in hindsight and to realize, yeah, something was happening after all. That time, which seemed so dreary and bleak, was really forming the foundation that allowed this other thing to happen. It was necessary. Or that time really hurt. It hurt terribly, but that gave me a kind of compassion that prepared me for this next thing. It's really with the wisdom of hindsight. And it has been so many times in my life trying to make a difference, trying to act in a way that's impactful, that's important, that's helpful, where it feels like it's gone nowhere. But sometimes when I am lucky with the wisdom of hindsight, I realize, oh, that put the pieces into play for something really good to happen. You know, I don't know how many times... Um, I've given somebody a book, you know, and they've kind of nodded distantly and walked away. And sometimes years later, you know, they'll say to me, you know, you gave me that book and it really didn't mean much to me at the time, I have to say. Um, But then, you know, my mother got sick or I lost my job or, or this really wonderful opportunity came up and I was sort of timid about going for it. And I picked up the book. And it was perfect. There's so many times when we don't even realize what has been set into motion or put into play by the little thing we've done. It's only with the 
the brilliance of hindsight that we can even have a clue sometimes. So I'm a giant proponent of the Hindsight Meditation Society. We let go a little bit of our attachment to the instant success, to transforming the world, this moment, to having things go exactly our way. We have some equanimity. Because equanimity is wisdom, it's understanding, it's seeing the big picture. And if we can't see it, it's knowing there is a big picture. And that all we can do is the best that we can and let it go. If we can have this sense of continually working on our motivation and transforming it, working on our our skillfulness to the best that we can, and learning all of the time. Being able to let go, to be more at peace, to let things evolve in their own time, in their own way. Then it's like our metta practice, the practice of all of the Brahma Viharas, comes to life in, in whatever we are doing. And then we're really free. And then we understand a very human manifestation. I was thinking today, as you all did metta for a difficult person of um, these two kind of back-to-back examples. One was from the great Indian saint named Curly Baba, uh, who very famously said, never throw anyone out of your heart. Never throw anyone out of your heart. And my friend and colleague, Sylvia Borstein, had a kind of addendum to that where she said, never throw anyone out of your heart. You may throw them out of your life, but never throw them out of your heart. You know, our vision of life needs to include everybody without exception, because that's the truth, actually. But what we do and how we act, we act as skillfully as we can. In the situations that we confront, we do the best we can. And then we learn to let go. Not to let go into some kind of um, sort of nihilistic despair, but to let go into that sense of not knowing. And that sense of having done really the best that we could do. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.